Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. On this episode of Most Notorious, the case for Montague Druitt as Jack the Ripper. The Jack the Ripper story is not what a lot of other books think. It's actually in three acts. The first act is the murders between 1888 and 1891. And the third act is that certain Victorians believed that Montague Druitt had murdered five of about a dozen prostitutes in the East End in those years. It's the second act that, oddly enough, that is that is veiled from us because they didn't want to talk about it. And we've had to reverse engineer from the third act to try and work out what the second act was about. Because in the second act is how these Victorians discovered that Montague Druitt, according to them, was the murderer and what they did about it. Welcome all to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me once again. I am so happy to have as my guests today, Christine Ward-Ages and Jonathan Hingsworth. They are Australian researchers and writers who believe that they have solved the Jack the Ripper case. Their book is called The Escape of Jack the Ripper, The Truth About the Cover-Up and His Flight from Justice. Great to have you on. Thank you both so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So I've asked this to guests before, to other Jack the Ripper researchers who have been on the show. This is a case that evokes such emotion. So many opinions out there on various suspects, uh, strong opinions. Is it a little intimidating to wade into such a notorious case? Well, the way I got involved wasn't so much intimidating as it was uh, a discrepancy. As a high school history teacher about 10 years ago, I was teaching the senior students about the British Empire. And I just thought as a, a, a way of getting, getting their interest, everybody's interested in true crime to some extent, I would start with the Jack the Ripper murders which I assumed were unsolved 
could never be solved and that there was no particular mystery in that. Uh, it was an era before fingerprint identification, an era before blood type differentiation, so that some uh, lumpen maniac had done these murders and perhaps ended up in an asylum or something like that. I mean, this to me wasn't uh, of particular interest. It was just we would look at the true crime murders and then move on, move on to looking at the imperialism, and colonialism of uh, Great Britain at that time in the late 19th century. But one of the students noticed uh, a discrepancy in the secondary sources, that is the sources written in the 20th century, uh, some of them by people you've probably interviewed, Eric, and in the primary sources, that is the sources from the time being studied, in particular that the, the police chief, Sir Melvin McNaughton, was often said to be hopelessly underinformed about his chief suspect, Montague John Druitt, the English gentleman. And, um, and I just repeated that. I said this, the, 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 he thought that the man was uh, a doctor. Uh, he was, in fact, a young lawyer. So, you know, it was very much like the Keystone Cops. And I was prepared to move on. And a student whose name was Bianca said, well, hang on. What he writes that is supposedly his mistake, he writes, MJ Druitt said to be a doctor. And I said, well, that's right. And that's wrong because he was a lawyer. And she persisted with, no, no, but said to be a doctor. Uh, it's contingent. It's provisional. I, it means might be a doctor, doesn't it? And I said, well, I suppose it does. Well, isn't the opposite of that is, well, maybe he's not a doctor. And I thought, well, that actually is a, an astute observation. And it, it brought my whole lesson to a halt while I tried to figure out from books that have been written about Jack the Ripper in the uh, mid to late 20th century and early 21st century, uh, how they explain that. And the answer is they'd never noticed it. I hadn't noticed it. They hadn't noticed it. But a 16-year-old student had noticed it, that this was more ambiguous than, than was given credit for. And that began uh, my journey of writing two books now on, on this case, because I it took me a few years to nut this out. But with Christine's help, we worked out that almost all the books written on the subject are fundamentally flawed. And the flaw is this. Sir Melville McNaughton was, he knew that Montague Druitt was a young lawyer, but his documents partly had to go to the public and he was too discreet to allow the Druitt family to be uh, targeted by, say, their neighbours or people they work with because they'd be ruined. Secondly, we worked out that it's not a mystery, not to certain Victorians, a police chief, the, the deceased murderer's family, a couple of clergymen, they worked out, they knew that Montague Druitt was the Ripper and this solution was shared with the late Victorian and Edwardian public. So to Edwardians, it was not a mystery. It had been semi-officially revealed that the murderer of 1888 was a, a an English gentleman above suspicion. And then when everybody died out who knew that, it's only in the late 1920s, early 1930s that a new generation of uh, researchers were looking for this 
doctor who had drowned himself in the Thames and they couldn't find him. And they assumed that it was it was all made up. It was just a mythical figure. And in the 1960s, when the uh, drowned doctor was finally revealed to be the drowned, not a doctor, the drowned lawyer, Montague Druitt, it was assumed by certain people that, well, obviously Sir Melvin McNaughton doesn't know who he's talking about. And the whole subject went in the wrong direction. We are not claiming we've solved the mystery. We are claiming that it is a solved case and that the solution, because it had certain mixtures of fact and fiction, became lost after the First World War. And we're actually showing what these people believe. We can't know that Montague Druitt was the was the murderer, but they believed he was the murderer. And they were people, especially his family, who didn't want him to be the murderer. Uh, and so they're going against their own bias in having to accept that he was Jack the Ripper. That's our line. Other people claim to have solved it. We claim to have restored uh, and rediscovered the original solution. Yes, I totally get what you're saying. So I think most of my listeners have a pretty good grasp of the case. We've covered it in multiple episodes. But maybe you can give us a quick synopsis just to start with just to refresh our memories, specifically about the murders of the Canonical Five. Um, in mid-1888, there were uh, two murders a month or so apart uh, of, of women who were called fallen women or unfortunates who were driven into prostitution due to poverty and the lack of a welfare state. This is in London's East End, particularly the suburb of Whitechapel, which was like the, the worst slum of the worst slum. And uh, hundreds and hundreds of women and some men, of course, and some children. It's all tragic, this, uh, were driven to sell themselves in the street for a crust of bread. Um, and there were these two murders, Emma Smith and um, Martha Tabram, and they appear to have been killed separately by separate uh, uh, gangs and their bodies have been left essentially in the street, although Emma Smith actually died in a hospital. Now, that got quite a bit of coverage because of the ferocity of their assaults. And then in, in the, at the end of August comes the murder of Polly Nichols, another woman, defenceless, poor woman, driven into being a sex worker by poverty. She is murdered and she is also left savagely, her body savagely brutalised post-mortem in the street. And therefore, the press now really focused on this murder and in fact linked it to the other two and, and started talking about perhaps the first two weren't by gangs and that this is some maniac loose who, who needs to be caught by the forces of Scotland Yard uh, as quickly as possible. And then after that, within a month, there's another murder, uh, also a fairly horrific um, post-mortem. We think that he probably strangled his victims. So he doesn't torture them. He kills them. He's a blitz killer, kills them quickly. And then he interferes with their remains and even um, carries away uh, one of their organs, um, in, in, in a couple of cases, the womb, for example. And so now terror strikes London 
that there is a maniac who is extremely elusive, who is murdering women. And so all women are trying to rush home in the dark streets, when actually it's obvious that he is not killing women, at least yet, except in the East End and except in Whitechapel. And in fact, you can even narrow it down, and people did at the time, that he's actually doing it in sort of a square mile area called the Evil Quarter Mile by social reformers who said that this is this is the, 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 the worst area for congestion, for eight families living in a shoebox, for, for unemployment, lack of sanitation, disease. This is where he is committing these uh, horrific uh, uh, atrocities. And then um, the whole thing escalates again at the end of um, September when presumably the same murderer uh, kills a woman, Elizabeth Stride. He only slits her throat, strangles her, slits her throat. And then we think that he was probably disturbed by a coachman arriving with his cart. And so he took off and within an hour, he had killed uh, another defenceless woman uh, called Catherine Eddowes. And this time he was seen by a witness. We, we think, I mean, lots of witnesses claim to see lots of things, but this particular witness saw him within a few minutes of uh, a bobby in the street finding the eviscerated body of, of Catherine Eddowes. And he was described as um, a man of about 30, medium height and build, essentially uh, a man of Gentile features, fair, fair skin, fair moustache, uh, chatting amiably with his intended victim. Then there's an interregnum of about a month, and then Mary Jane Kelly, the youngest of the victims, the rest were middle-aged, and uh, so, so the primary sources claim uh, she was the most sort of voluptuous and pretty of the victims, and she is murdered in her one-room hovel and is, is, is torn to pieces post-mortem. And the photographs of that, which were eventually uh, released much later, are as horrific now as they were then, even in our age of horror on the internet. And it's 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 often thought that that she is the the fifth victim of this singular murderer, and that the murders then ended. In fact, what really happened is, from the point of view of the public and the press and the police is that Jack the Ripper, who got his nickname from a hoax letter created by two journalists to increase sales, he sort of takes a hiatus and then he comes back later the next year and another so-called fallen woman, Alice McKenzie, is found murdered, but not, but not post-mortem mutilated. And then there's another long interregnum where there are some other... Uh, victims, female victims, uh, they're not sure even if they uh, were murdered by the same man. Certainly the press were happy to say that every single murder was by the same maniac. Uh, and then finally, it, it kind of comes to an end in early 1891 with the murder by, with a knife of young Francis Coles. Again, uh, a bobby on the beat perhaps uh, startled the murderer and he ran off and couldn't perform his post-mortem mutilations. So initially, the Jack the Ripper story, which is one of the reasons it's embedded itself so much in popular culture, 
was not an autumn of terror. It was a protracted uh, true crime, series of true crimes uh, from mid-1888 to early 1891. And hundreds of men were arrested, but nobody was charged. And it's only from 1891 that George Sims, a very famous writer of the day, a true crime writer and writer of lots of things, he uh, releases this information that probably the murderer is a young man with uh, some uh, medical expertise, but not a graduate, not a doctor, and that he has probably killed himself. Now, we think that he is actually trying to prepare the public for the fact that he knows all about Montague Druitt from Sir Melvin McNaughton, his close friend, and Sir Melvin McNaughton, the police chief, knows about that from the uh, uh, Druitt family. But certainly from 1898, when the book Mysteries of Police and Crime is published uh, by the, the nation's chief uh, jailer, if you like, Major Arthur Griffiths, uh, who's also a true crime writer, that is the first time the public are informed that, in fact, there were three quite good suspects. I mean, as far as the public were aware, there were no good suspects, and that one of them was a middle-aged doctor who drowned himself in the Thames, and that he was almost certainly almost certainly Jack the Ripper. We can't say it beyond that because he doesn't have his day in court. It's not appropriate to just accuse someone of being definitely a murderer when they they're deprived of due process, and so from that moment on, 1898 through to the early 20s, this is where Jack the gentleman, Jack the surgeon, uh, becomes the accepted solution uh, to the mystery, and then that will be lost. So the Druitt family is so fascinating. And many members of this family play very important roles in your book. So if you don't mind, um, would you give us some background information on the Druids? The Druids that are the main players in this story. Mm. Well, the Druid family were a very respectable upper middle class family. They were a self-made success story. Montague's family hailed from Wimborne in Dorset and um, Monty's father was the local surgeon, Dr William Druitt. And the Druitt clan came from the Mayo Druitt family and the Mayos were well-known and still the name is well-known in medical circles, the Mayo Clinic. So that was sort of their family and... um, Monty's father married a local girl who had, as we discovered later, she had serious mental health problems. But if we look at the um, the clan and, and the influences on Montague Druitt, he had a very famous uncle and um, Robert Druitt, Dr. Robert Druitt, he was the oldest member of the Druitt clan and um, he lived in Kensington, in London with his family and he was very famous on a couple of levels but the most fame that he found was because he was a spokesman on drinking wine and he had a he did quite a few studies into the quality of wines and he 
believed that if you drank lighter, more pure wine, it was actually a health benefit to people. And alcohol drinking was a big issue in um, Victorian society. And especially if you look into the east end of London where drunkenness was a really big issue. People were drinking cheap gin, cheap wine, anything they could find and were drunk a lot of the time. So uh, Robert Druitt, Dr Robert Druitt, he was featured in advertisements. If you look into the old British papers from that time, he appears nearly every day in an advertisement for quality wine and therefore his name was well known to most people, whether you were of... Um, you were poor, working class, upper class. If you were someone who drank alcohol, you could always, if someone said you were drinking too much, you could say, no, Dr. Robert Druitt recommends this one. So we found even after he had died in 1883, his name was still featured on advertisements as if he was still alive and recommending another new brand of alcohol. So that's... Um, that's an aspect of Monty's life where the Druitt name would have brought up, oh, are you related to Dr Robert Druitt? So he had a famous person in his family. And the other thing that we learned about Dr Robert Druitt, he, he was very, very accomplished and very outspoken about public sanitation and public health issues. So he had many pamphlets and um, lectures about his views on prostitution and at that time there, there was a lot of debate about whether women should be arrested and taken off the street or whether, you know, they should just have um, limitations on, on where they lived and, and he believed that they really should be taken off the street and... Um, either reformed or, I suppose, incarcerated in some way. So he had very strong views about that, and that is because of the sexually transmitted diseases that were really untreatable at that time. So that was just another health issue they were trying to deal with. There was alcoholism, the um, sexual diseases, and the, the disease that, that was rampant all the time typhus, cholera, TB, you know, the East End, if, if you survived to 30, you were doing pretty well. So if you look into the, the writings of Dr Drewer, he was really an expert on all of these things and he was highly respected. And that was the atmosphere that Monty Drewer grew up in. He was close to his uncle Robert and he definitely would have formed a lot of his own views about prostitution, the way the poor were living and um, how that should be, be rectified. His uncle also wrote what was um, called the Surgeon's Bible. So he wrote this um, big work about surgery and that book was something that was in the Druitt homes of all, all of the nephews and nieces and something that definitely Monty would have read. And there's a, a few surviving references to Monty in the family letters of Dr Robert Druitt's family, and it shows us that Monty was a regular visitor to his 
his uncle in Kensington. And by finding that, it, it can show us that he was influenced by him. He asked his uncle when he had gone to Oxford University to come and visit him at Oxford. And I guess that's probably the equivalent of having a, a famous celebrity as your relative and asking them to come to your school and you can be reflected in their glory. So the Druitt family, they're a really interesting family. There's an archive of their letters at um, West Sussex, um, Chichester, and there's hundreds of letters from that family. And by reading those, we were able to develop a good feel for Monty within that family and how all of the family communicate with, with each other, how close they were. And we found that they were a very close family. And when Dr. Robert Druitt died, his wife, um, Isabella, she became the matriarch of the whole clan and she comes into the Jack the Ripper story a little bit later on. We'd also say that he has, you know, several children, Dr Robert Druitt, and one of them is Charles Druitt, and he's a critical figure in our interpretation of the material because he is a Church of England priest and we believe that uh, he received the confession of his cousin Montague after the Mary Jane Kelly uh, atrocity and that he took steps to try and get Montague into uh, into care and that these failed and that Montague committed suicide. But he'd also said in his confession something to the effect of, I want the truth to come out in 10 years. And Reverend Charles Druitt felt bound by this commitment, almost like a deathbed commitment, that he must somehow tell the public the truth. Uh, but then, of course, that leads to the collision with, but how do I tell the truth and not destroy myself and my clan? And um, Because we'll be shunned in the street like typhus carriers if we're known to be uh, related to Jack the Ripper, the most notorious murder, murder in English history. So how do I reveal it to the public? Perhaps, you know, I'll, I just won't say the name, but I will try and communicate in 10 years, so around 1898, 1899, uh, the truth. And this is pivotal to our theory as well. Time for a break. Back momentarily. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. 
As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we've returned. So why did Montague Druitt decide to pursue law well we think that he he was he he he, he wasn't sure what to do so he took a, a, an exam for the uh, public service the civil service in England and he did well and he could have got a job there so he he took the exam he gets in there's no evidence he ever took up a position in civil service and we also, believe that the sources tell us, like said to be a doctor, to get back to how, where we started, the word doctor was interchangeable, we discovered, with medical student. And that therefore, uh, what McNaughton is really saying is that apparently he, he had some surgical skills, surgical knowledge training. So we think that he, he became a, a, a medical student after graduating from Oxford University with a with a third class degree he got a he got a scholarship to Winchester a very prestigious boys school but he seems to have created as a as an exceptional student and he only managed a bare pass at Oxford perhaps playing too much sport anyway he takes a position as a as a, a classics teacher at a small boys school in the uh, middle class suburb of Blackheath he applies to the civil service doesn't take up a position. We think that he then tried his hand to be like his famous uncle and his father uh, and be a doctor, and that whether he ever even registered, we're not sure, but but that he attended some medical classes and then thought, you know what, I'm not going to do this either. And therefore, like his brother, who had studied law, his older brother William by one year, who is also instrumental, we believe, to the cover-up, uh, he decided he would be uh, not just a lawyer but a barrister, and the thing about being a barrister is, is it was very hard to make money from it because a lot of your clients have no money. Nevertheless, when he drowned himself in the Thames at the end of 1888, he in fact left quite a lucrative estate proving that he had been a, a very talented barrister and, and a commercially successful barrister. Um, on that note, we also um, have a letter that I found in the West Sussex archive that shows that Monty's father, Dr. William Druitt, 
had communicated with his older brother, Dr. Robert Druitt. Obviously, they were concerned about Monty and the direction he was going in. And there was an expectation in that family that the young men would be very well educated and, and take on a profession. And Monty, who had looked like the shining light of the whole family, when he was at Winchester, he did very well and he won a scholarship to New College Oxford. But once he he got into university and moved to Oxford, he seemed to lose his way. So uh, letters that we found suggest that there was a concern about Monty and his father ha has written to Uncle Robert just explaining that he's going to try his hand at law and he's going to have to make some sacrifices to do it. That was an interesting find in that archive and it does suggest that there was a period of time where the family were pretty concerned about the direction Monty was going into but um, once he got into the inner temple, his father agreed to give him an advance of what he would inherit when his father died. And um, the reason was it was very expensive to be a law student. You had, apart from your tu tuition fees, you had to be able to set up a, a chambers from which to work once you graduated. And you had compulsory dinners and wine to pay for. So that was um, something that took up a lot of money. So Monty did agree that he would not inherit anything from his father's estate when the father, his father died. And um, therefore his, his father gave him an advance of that money. And again, that suggests that his father wasn't quite convinced about Monty sticking to something it suggests that Monty was a bit flighty in what he said and what he actually did. He had great ideas about how successful he was going to be, possibly from being very successful in his high school years, but actually delivering on the hard work, that, that was not coming through. So that is an interesting aspect of Monty's personality at that point. Yeah, I believe that you're right, that he did show some aggressive tendencies as a young man. Definitely um, aggressive, and he seemed very sure of himself. Um, there's some pieces that we found in the, um, the old Wycombest magazine, which was from Winchester College, and... What was unusual in a few of those reports is that it's essentially a school magazine of a very elite school, boys and, school. an elite boys' school, and they would um, cover really everything that happened in that school, including the debating team. And there's quite a few instances where they... <laughs> they um, name Monty and say that he was pulled up on his intolerant and aggressive language. And also on the cricket field, he was a very talented cricketer, but it's often said that he had deadly bowling skills. And it just shows, I mean, you might say, well, that's being competitive and, and he would have been very competitive and very successful. But I think a lot of the, the comments about his debating skills suggest that he he could be quite aggressive and perhaps a bit nasty 
So, uh, the East End. I know that there are some naysayers out there that would like to believe, or do believe, that Jack the Ripper had to be a local to the area in order to do what was done. Um, Druitt is an outsider to this part of London. What do you say to those critics? What reason would he have had to be in that area of town? I'll give you two answers to that. One is that Christine, who found all the sources, bar one or two, I didn't find anything. That's not true. But but one of the things she found that for the first time really links Montague Druitt to the East End, to the poverty of Whitechapel, is that a particularly conservative uh, charitable organisation called Oxford House, based on Oxford graduates, as he was, went to his legal chambers at King's Bench Walk in London and appealed to the men, to the to the Ox, the Oxonians, as they were called, to help out uh, the degraded people of the East End by giving them free help with with legal advice or, or, or classes or just go there and help them, do something. And so that is the best evidence we have in terms of a source that Montague Druitt worked for Oxford House and therefore became very familiar with the ins and outs of Whitechapel. But I'm going to give you a second answer to that which lies at the basis of our claim that we are quite separate from so-called ripperology. The basis of ripperology in the late 20th century, early 21st century, is this. Sir Melvin McNaughton didn't know much of anything about Montague Druitt. He thought he was a surgeon. He thought he was middle-aged. And he thought that uh, he committed suicide almost immediately after the Mary Jane Kelly murder. All three of these critical pieces of data are wrong. This is actually the basis of ripperology. They think that's a firm foundation to ignore McNaughton, forget Druitt, try and move on to other police suspects or other suspects who the police didn't know about, and therefore you have a whole library of books devoted to other solutions. What we believe we can show is that this is built on sand. In fact, we can show that Melvin McNaughton did know the particulars of Montague Druitt. Uh, to give that example I gave before, the column by George Sims of November 1st, 1891. He gets his information from McNaughton and he describes the Ripper as a young man, not a medical graduate, who has killed himself, who has died by his own hand. Now, that is critical that McNaughton and these other people around McNaughton do know the particulars very well of Monty Druitt, and we can show this from other sources. And, and why that's pertinent to your question about Druitt in the East End is this. The first thing that, that Mel McNaughton would want to do is get Druitt off the hook. Druitt had been dead by then for two and a half years. And what he wanted was 
to say to the family, I don't know why you think he's Jack the Ripper or he confessed to being Jack the Ripper. Mad people confess to all sorts of mad things that aren't true. I mean, McNaughton always believed in the basic good of... Um, <laughs> Of uh, 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 publicly, uh, sorry, public school educated gentlemen who'd been to boys' schools. He'd been to Eton, even better than Winchester. Uh, so he had a prejudice when it came to Montague Drewer, and that was it seems very unlikely that an English gentleman could possibly be responsible for these crimes. But in the end, he had to agree that Drewer was guilty, and he had a personal reason that Christine discovered for wanting to say to the Druitt family, you're wrong, you're just wrong. He may have been delusional, but he wasn't a serial killer. Uh, but he had to agree with them, even though he had a, a, a close friend of both George Sims and Mel McNaughton, Colonel Sir Vivian Magendi, who was as famous as Dr. Robert Druitt in his day because he was a bomb disposal expert, he was a national hero. Uh, he put his life on the line uh, every time he uh, uh, disabled a terrorist bomb. And he was head of explosives at the Home Office, highly distinguished uh, uh, figure of uh, unimpeachable integrity. And he, we discovered, well, Christine discovered, ha had, a, had a member of his family, who a member of his clan, who was married into the Druitt clan, who was, in fact, Isabel Magendi Hill. So she has Magendi's surname. And, and she married Charles Druitt. She married Reverend Charles Druitt of the uh, of the West Country of Dorset, who is Montague Druitt's cousin and whom we believe Montague confessed to. Now, that gives McNaughton a personal motive and George Sims a personal motive for them not wanting the their friend Magendi to be in any way linked to these horrors. But they couldn't, they couldn't simply dismiss what the Druitt family were telling them and the evidence that they presented, they had to accept it. And so from that point on, McNaughton and Sims and obviously Magendi are part of trying to uh, cover up uh, the Druitt solution. So the answer to your question is, we think that he was, Montague Druitt worked for Oxford House who had appeared appealing to him in his own office. And secondly, if we can show that McNaughton and George Sims know the particulars of Montague Druitt, the whole of Ripperology, so-called Ripperology, collapses because it's based on McNaughton being ignorant of Montague Druitt. Because if they knew about Montague Druitt and his true details, then questions like, could he have been there when he had a cricket match on? Or... Could he, have, could he have been there when he didn't know the East End? Those are the questions they would have asked at the time. And the answer to all of these was obviously, no, he, could, he did know the East End and no, he didn't have a cricket match at the same time. Or else they would have got him off. They had every reason and motive to get him off and they couldn't get him off. So Montague Druitt's physical appearance, that's important to your theory because of the eyewitness accounts. Well, as we said, there are a number of witnesses who give different descriptions of the potential murderer of, of the victims. And really, you can discard all of them except for the one who is within 10 minutes of uh, Bobby Watkins when he finds Catherine Eddowes' body 
in, in mitre court, uh, and she's very horribly uh, eviscerated. But we think that the commercial traveller and uh, uh, Jewish immigrant, Joseph Lavender, he had a good look at this man chatting to a woman uh, we believe to be Catherine Eddowes, and his description is of her last client, and it's a description that perfectly matches photographs of Montague Druitt, uh, a man of medium size, uh, a man with a fair moustache, and in other words, a, a Jewish man is describing a Gentile-featured man and dressed rather like a sailor, not in the iconic-to-be top hat and, and, and cape and carrying a medical bag. That's all, that's all iconography of, uh, of the Edwardian era uh, and the 20s. In fact, Montague Druitt has sensibly dressed down to walk amongst a, a crime-ridden neighbourhood where he would he would have such chance of being robbed if he looked like a a, a toff. Mind you, a lot of toffs did go down to the East End to, to what was called slumming, just to have a look around at this um, uh, hideous place as as sort of callous sightseers, and they certainly didn't dr uh, dress down for it, from what we can tell. But anyway, the point is is that the the best eyewitness description is Joseph Lavendi. Now, various writers on this subject won't concede that. Because the whole default position of ripperology is you can have any suspect you like except Druitt. Because if it's Druitt, then and, and, and he, his name has been known since 1965 to the public, uh, it's almost like we've wasted decades of our life uh, pursuing red herrings and false leads. Um, I would disagree with that. All research is valuable. Uh, it's a bit like, uh, we would argue, uh, it's, it's rather like the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, there is a school of thought which says uh, you can have any any uh, suspect or combination of suspects you like uh, in 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 murdering, conspiring to murder JFK, CIA, FBI, even Lyndon Johnson, Boy Scouts, anyone, anyone you like, except Lee Harvey Oswald. You know, there's this whole very aggressive. Uh, conspiracy industry, which says Lee Harvey Oswald was a government agent who was uh, was uh, framed for the assassination, and we regard this as, uh, frankly, ludicrous, uh, based on the open and shut evidence that he uh, was the murder of President Kennedy in Dealey Plaza. Uh, we're not saying that he didn't have uh, conspirators. Same thing with Jack the Ripper. You can have anyone but Druitt, and so. Even though the best witness describes a man who looks just like Druid, and that particular witness, you see, that witness, Joseph Lavender, was used to confront later uh, Ripper suspects, uh, Tom Sadler and um, William Grant, who are both Gentiles and both sailors, real sailors. Uh, shows you how much the Scotland Yard put their stock in that witness above anybody else. And in fact, from what we can tell from a newspaper report in 1895, he, uh, Lavender, affirmed to the suspect, William Grant, who was caught in the act of attempting to assault, probably murder, uh, a poor defenceless woman driven into prostitution in, in Whitechapel, Alice Graham, who survived. He said, yes, that's the man. And the only surviving photo of William Grant 
shows him to be arguably facially extremely similar to Montague Druitt. Wow, interesting. I would like to ask you about motive. What do you believe Druitt's motive was for doing what you believe he did? I know you've suggested that he suffered from mental illness, but was there something else going on as well? Well, the family believed that he had a what Victorians, the Victorian medical establishment, called epileptic mania, which is where you, 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 you commit terrible acts in a sort of fit, in a sort of seizure state, and then you only vaguely remember what you've done. And we can understand why they wanted to believe that he was like that, because it, it means that he, he wasn't a, a vicious uh, killer. He, 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 he was ill. He, he was mentally ill and not responsible for, for, for what he did. And, and had he not killed himself, he would have spent the rest of his life in a, probably a plush private asylum. That was the family view. That was not McNaughton's view. So Melvin McNaughton didn't take that view at all. He regarded him as sexually insane. Again, a Victorian expression long gone that means a, a person who is erotically, sexually turned on or fulfilled by acts of violence or watching acts of violence. So I don't think he took it that seriously that he he didn't know what he was doing. He would just sort of wake up and discover himself covered in blood or, or something like that. Now, what people at the time in 1888 noticed is that the murders are being committed, as we said before, in the evil quarter mile that reformers had identified as the worst slum of the worst slum. And they thought it might be that this is the motive of some very sick person who thinks they're, they're, they're doing good. And they were surrounded by, at the time, Irish people who were committing terrorist acts, trying to blow up Parliament, trying to blow up Scotland Yard, trying to blow up lots of things. So terrorism was not foreign to them at all, the idea that you commit an evil act in order to supposedly create a better society down the road. And we th we agree with them. We think that these reformers who thought, why is the murderer doing it in the worst slum of the worst slum? Well, he's certainly achieving his objective if it is to get the press to stop talking about the women as uh, sex fiends, nymphomaniacs, all this nonsense. They finally now were saying, look, these women were horrifically murdered, but you know what? Their lives were already destroyed by poverty and by social neglect, and something should be done to reform and, and, and cleanse the East End of systemic poverty. Now, George Bernard Shaw, famous playwright, he, he wrote a very uh, famous satirical letter about this where he said that, you know, us social reformers, because he was a socialist himself, have wasted our time with pamphlets and marching and, and letters to the editor, and we've got nowhere. And, and, and now some independent genius, this maniac, by offing a few dregs, as he puts it, has, has managed to turn the property-owning class into sort of primitive communists 
who are now all chattering about, well, we've got to do something about sanitation and we've got to do something about housing and we've got to do something about sewerage. He said, if only the murderer would offer Duchess, we might turn England into a socialist country. Now, he meant that satirically. But what he didn't know, George Bernard Shaw, is that the murderer isn't a local maniac. We believe that the Victorians who believed it was Montague Druitt were probably correct. And therefore, here's a man who lives in the West End, who keeps coming to the East End to murder prostitutes, when he could do that anywhere in London. And why do you keep returning to the Whitechapel when by the uh, second murder, which to the press is the fourth murder, uh, is crawling with police? It becomes much more dangerous for the murderer. And all he has to do is go elsewhere in London. And we think that Montague Druitt had read these stories about the first two murders and how the press were now beginning to become a little bit more sympathetic to the plight of so-called fallen women. And he saw himself as a socialist. He, he was going to be different from his great and prestigious uncle, who was a, a complete conservative, who just thought, get these um, uh, uh, criminals off the street. Prostitutes are, are criminals. They carry disease. And what Montague was turned on was by all of the anarchist and socialist ideas floating around at the time. And he thought, I am going to do great good. I have a mission. And it is to bring reform to the East End. I'm going to make the ruling classes face their shame for what they have done to these uh, women in the East End by murdering them. But not just murdering them, but by cutting them open and leaving their insides on the street uh, as a sort of shame to, to the ruling elite. And if that was his uh, intention in his mind, it was enormously successful. We do not argue that he is seriously uh, a, a, a left-wing actor or operator. Uh, he sends no manifesto to the government. You know, he's not the Victorian equivalent of the Unabomber. He, he, he is not a part of uh, some sort of socialistic cell um, he is more like today's terrorists who, in their life, they don't stop the things that perhaps their ideology or their religion says they shouldn't do, like drinking uh, or gambling. They're actually semi-criminal types who, who then say, well, I'm actually doing this for a greater mission, and I'm going to get my Mack truck, and I'm going to run down 80 innocent people for a greater good. He's like that, Montague Druid. He is, we think, motivated by, as McNaughton believed correctly, some sort of sexual uh, sickness. Um, he knows what he's doing. He's not forgetting. Uh, but in his mind, he justifies it by, but I keep going to the evil quarter mile to bring a better life for these people by sacrificing some women whose lives are already ruined. So we, we completely subscribe to the, to the notion of, uh, of, of, in his mind, he was Jack the Socialist. At some point, though, he confesses. Does that mean that he felt remorse? That he had had some internal battle of conscience? We think, yes. In the primary sources, George Sims's stuff, Simov McNaughton, a couple of other people, the, 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 the Charles Druitt via his brother-in-law, we think, um, uh, Arthur de Bollet Hill. What you see is 
something snapped in him. The double life of the English gentleman above suspicion and the the, the monster of Whitechapel. That double life seems to have brought such strain to him uh, that he 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 had a breakdown. Uh, after the murder of Mary Jane Kelly. And therefore, we believe that a newspaper source uh, from an American newspaper reveals what other sources also uh, point to, and that is the family got him out of England at that point, uh, that he was in a raving state um, and and put him in an asylum in France and uh, a very expensive asylum, and they spent a lot of money on that, that to, to, to kind of put him out of the way and uh, it didn't work. It backfired almost immediately because one of the nurses could speak English and understood that this was a man confessing to be Jack the Ripper and went to the police. And so he had to be extracted from that asylum and brought back to London. That's our view, that the, that the sources show that, that he cracked at some point. But again, like a lot of people who have a mental derangement. He was able to be lucid again and to be in court and at his sporting club. He actually wins the biggest civil case of his career. But then again, he also then calmly puts rocks in his pockets and wanders into the Thames River to kill himself after such a great legal victory. So what we see here, we think, is a man leading a a double life, a a man, a, a, a murderer, if you like, in torment. And a quick pause. We will return in a moment. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. That is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, Flat Earth Theory, and was the moon landing fake, and if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Serial Killers Strange disappearances, unexplained mysteries, terrible disasters. I'm Nate Hale, and in my show, The Conspirators, I'm here to tell you all the stories from history your teacher never told you about. Hear the real story behind the Bermuda Triangle, or about the history of people drinking blood to stay young, or about the serial killer operating in Nazi-occupied Paris, or what dark secret lurked within the walls of a Scottish castle. In my show, The Conspirators, I take you on a journey through some of the darkest corners of history where you'll hear about the folklore, myths, and misconceptions behind some of the darkest events that ever happened. Listen to The Conspirators on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, sometimes the truth really is stranger than fiction. From Fort Sumter to the Battle of Gettysburg. From the Emancipation Proclamation to Appomattox Courthouse. From the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Compromise of 1877. 
From Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant and William Tecumseh Sherman. To Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. And we're the hosts of a podcast that takes a deep dive into that era when a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts. And back again. Why do you believe he chose that particular location for suicide? And why did he decide to drown himself? We believe that when he came back from an asylum in France, he actually, as Jonathan just said, he he attended a few things. He he was in court and he won a court case. And then it appears because he drowned himself in a, a suburb of London called Chiswick, we had a look at um, why he might do that, and people have known for a long time who, who look at this case that um, Montague's mother actually died in an asylum, in a, a private asylum in Chiswick, but she died a couple of years after her son died, and when at the time that he died, which is thought to be about the 4th of December 1888, she was not in that mental institution at Chiswick. So a lot of people have thought he probably went to visit her and then walked down the street and drowned himself. Well, she wasn't in that asylum at the time, so that's not possible. What we believe is that he actually took refuge in that asylum and something that we have discovered is that um, his cousin Charles Druitt was actually friends with the owners of that private asylum, the Took family and um, two brothers were the psychiatrists. The two brothers were the psychiatrists there, and they had a sister called Caroline Took, who was a member of the Church of England. And she knew Charles Druitt and his wife Isabel Majendi Hill, they were close friends, and they were close family friends of the Took family. So we think that um, Charles and Monty's brother William arranged for Monty to go into that asylum and be looked after by the Took family. Now, something we also understand is that from newspaper sources is that there was a call put out for police to go and check private asylums in London because they believed that Jack the Ripper may have been put into an asylum. By his family. And the, 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 what we see from the sources, like George Sims later on, is that there was a police dragnet closing on the so-called middle-aged surgeon, as Drew will be disguised as, and that they just missed him. And we think that Montague did not kill himself out of remorse. He killed himself because he knew the police were closing on these asylums and that 
he he had being a, a, an educated uh, fellow, he had read in the newspaper that the the Home Secretary Henry Matthews had talked about how after Mary Jane Kelly's murder, there were Confederates of the Ripper who were putting themselves in great jeopardy by by protecting him and that they would also be targeted by the police. So I think out of family loyalty and the, and the perception, perhaps the wrong perception, but that was his perception that the police were about to knock on the door of the Manor House Asylum in, in Chiswick, an outer suburb of London, um, he decided that he would just slip away and drown himself in the Thames River right next door. So you you uncovered some evidence that suggests that during these murders, he might have been arrested, right? The, again, you know, um, there will be people who will say, if you don't have an arrest warrant, if you don't have an arrest record with MJ Druitt's name on it, you, you can't make such a suggestion. But a lot of our book, we have tried to, to be fair with the reader and say, look, we, we don't know this for a fact. The Jad the Ripper story is not what a lot of other books think. It's actually in three acts. The first act is the murders between 1888 and 1891. And the third act is that certain Victorians believed that Montague Druitt had murdered five of about a dozen prostitutes in the East End in those years. It's the second act that, oddly enough, that is that is veiled from us because they didn't want to talk about it. And we've had to reverse engineer from the third act to try and work out what the second act was about. Because in the second act is how these Victorians discovered that Montague Druitt, according to them, was the murderer and what they did about it. And so one of the things that is suggested by the sources is that there were two streams of information that came to Scotland Yard about Montague Druitt. And this is what Melvin McNaughton hints at very strongly in his 1914 memoirs, Days of My Years, that certain facts were not known about this man until some years after he became a detective officer, suggesting the information came from the murderer's own people, a euphemism for family, and that they came to McNaughton personally. Now, what he could have written was all the facts. That's less embarrassing for Scotland Yard if they just didn't know who he was. But he says certain facts. In other words, we had some facts on this man, but certain facts that, that were highly incriminating, we did not have until later. And his successor at Scotland Yard as assistant commissioner was Sir Basil Thompson, who coincidentally, if it is a coincidence, went to uh, Oxford with Montague Druitt and went to Eton with, uh, with well, not with, because they're a slightly different age, but, 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 but was, he's an old Etonian, which was an extremely important link to Sir Melvin McNaughton, that uh, old school tie. And Sir Basil Thompson wrote a book in the 1930s, but only in the American edition of his History of Scotland Yard does he claim that the, the doctor suspect could not be charged because there was not enough evidence. Again, this is pointing towards 
two streams of information that came in about Montague Drua. And in the later stream, a posthumous stream, because he was drowned by then, was where he was everything. He was everything. He was the solution. In the earlier stream, he, he is uh, practically nothing. He's a minor figure. Now, how could there be a minor stream on him? Well, here they'd have to have his name to be able to compare to the second stream of information. So we postulate that a story that came out in the 1930s by a, a, a man who was an old man by then, who had been a Bobby uh, with Scotland Yard and who had worked in Whitechapel, that he, uh, Robert Spicer, he, 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 had cl he claimed in 1930s that he had arrested a medical man and that he was probably Jack the Ripper on the night of the double murder, and that that that, that this man uh, was let go uh, way too early uh, by his superiors because of his uh, class and pedigree, and we think that behind that may lie the fact that Montague Druitt was in fact arrested in Whitechapel on that night and that he bluffed his way to freedom because he had bloodstains, and he said, well, I was a medical student, and I worked for Oxford House Charity, and I, I, I just did some, um, you know, some minor surgery on, on, on trying to help one of the degraded people of this area, and that as soon as he they asked him, Druitt, are you related to the late Dr. Robert Druitt? And he said, I'm his nephew. They practically let him go with an apology, uh, even though his bag may have contained... Uh, the organs of his of his uh, second victim that night, Catherine Eddowes. Now, we don't know that for a fact. We are putting together a circumstantial case that somehow Druitt was uh, perhaps a Bobby Bum did to him, uh, took his name, he gave an account of himself, he was a gentleman, and he was let go. And that that name was there on a list. And to Melvin McNaughton, uh, uh, who is not a braggart, his whole personality is not like that at all. And yet, from 1913 onwards, he talks about how his being delayed getting onto Scotland Yard by a year, which means he missed the 1888 murders, was the greatest regret of his entire life because he, he thinks that he could have had a go at Jack the Ripper, that he could have... I mean, he could have solved the case. And th this seems absurd. It surely would make no difference... Uh, if McNaughton was was Assistant Chief Constable in 1888 as opposed to when he started in June of 1889, unless what he means is that because of the Druitt name, he would have looked at that on an arrest sheet and would have thought, well, hang on, my friend Magendi is marrying, uh, you know, his clan's marrying into that clan. I, I, I think that I would have popped around to see Mr. Montague Druitt and that he would have tumbled to my game and he would have confessed to me. And, I mean, that, that perhaps is a, a, a bit optimistic. But that's what he means by the greatest regret of 1880, of not being there in 1888. Again, this all points to some kind of agitation about Druitt at the time of the murders, um, suggesting some sort of first stream of intelligence about him. And we think that perhaps he was arrested and let go. Hmm. So one of the dilemmas that you already talked about briefly is a dilemma experienced by Isabel Druitt, the matriarch of the family. 
she wants to do the right thing, but she also wants to protect her family. How does she try and walk that tightrope? Well, you see, a letter was discovered a few years ago now in the uh, collection of material by uh, the police commissioner, uh, 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 sorry, not police commissioner, the assistant police commissioner, uh, Sir Robert Anderson, Dr. Robert Anderson, as he was then, who was much criticised at the time for not for not sort of personally catching the murderer because he was in Switzerland sometimes um, uh, on medical leave. But the point about this document is it's the only document in this collection that refers to the Jack the Ripper case. And it's known as the Crawford Letter because it is a, 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 a small piece by the Earl of Crawford. Uh, it is undated and it's to Dr. Robert Anderson. And it's saying that a woman has approached him who he does not know and who does not want to give his na- her name. But she believes that Jack the Ripper is nearly related to her and that that, that connection puts their family presumably some kind of upper-class, upper respectable family, in great jeopardy, and that she is using the Earl of Crawford as an intermediary to try and get an interview with Dr. Anderson without revealing her name, because once the name is out there, they, they fear that, the, the, that they will be destroyed. And we think that that is Isabella Druitt, because there are various indications in the surviving letters that Christine read about addresses and cryptic references, and also the fact that the Earl of Crawford was related to Colonel Sir Vivian Magendi, again by marriage. So we think she met uh, Dr. Robert Anderson, and that he would have been very sympathetic to her, but that what he would have said to her was, you're wrong. You can stop worrying. Whoever you think your nearly related member who obviously had a mental illness, but he's not Jack the Ripper, because the murders have continued since the death of your member that you don't want to name to me, and you don't want to give me your name. So I hope that I can say to you, stop worrying and you can go on your way, and that, in other words, it failed. It was so difficult for them to both reveal and yet conceal at the same time, and we see this in the sources all all the way with Druitt, after 1888, the attempt to conceal and yet reveal and yet conceal. And we think that after that failure, she approached her son, the Reverend Charles Druitt in Dorset, his member of parliament, Henry Richard Farquharson, who is an old Etonian uh, like McNaughton. And, and, but, but as a part, member of parliament, he's not a member of the government, he's on the back bench, but the Farquharson is a member of the upper classes, the landed gentry, and that uh, that he is an officer of the state, in effect. And so we think that what they she tried to do was say, look, I can tell you the name because you'll be discreet. And if, if, you, can interf- if you can go to the police, the government, and tell them that you have a constituency, my son, Charles Drew at the Reverend, and, and, and tell him that his cousin was Jack the Ripper and leave it at that. We were just very anxious that, that with murders continuing of prostitutes and the police mistakenly thinking, as McNaughton later revealed in his memoirs, we were chasing a ghost, um, that it's the same murderer when these are obviously other murderers, copycat murderers. Please, can you make sure that no one is arrested and hung for the earlier murders that Montague did? Now, this proved to be 
if this is what happened, a hideous mistake uh, by the Druitt clan, because Farquharson was the MP, the Member of Parliament, was terribly indiscreet. He went to London uh, and told sort of like his 10 best friends, I know who Jack the Ripper is. I know for a fact who Jack the Ripper is. He's the son of a surgeon who, who killed himself in, a, in, a, in some sort of state of mind where he, he's not in control of himself when he commits the murders. Well, of course, it leaked to the press. And we think that this, that the Druitt family, the ones who knew the truth about Montague, were absolutely aghast that their worst fears were realised, that it, it had leaked to the press, not their name, to be fair to the MP, he he also altered the data so that uh, the, the Druitts could not be recognised in his constituency of West Dorset. For one thing, he instead of having the, the murderer confess verbally to a priest, he has the murderer confess by his action. He kills Mary Jane Kelly in this hideous, terrible way, and then that same night he supposedly commits suicide, a confession uh, by action rather than word. Nevertheless, the Druitt family must have been in a terrible state of anxiety that it was all about to spill out and, and ruin their, their, their lives. Uh, and then two days later, Francis Coles is murdered in Whitechapel. And as far as the police, press and public are concerned, this is the return after a long hiatus of Jack the Ripper. And so we think that at that moment, with the arrest of a sailor called Tom Sadler, who was confronted by that witness, Joseph Lavender, we think that at this moment, Isabella Druitt went to the high-ranking officer of Colonel Sir Vivian Magendi at the Home Office, uh, whom she is related to uh, by marriage, and, and said, look, it's Montague. And they expected then that the police to rock up and probably it would all come out in public uh, certainly their neighbours would know and that would be enough to ruin their careers and the church and the army and the law and so on and medicine. And instead what happened was that Magendi, he went to Scotland Yard, but of course what he did was he went to his friend. This is all the old boy network. He went to his friend Melvin McNaughton and it's Melvin McNaughton who showed up at the Druitt home alone and really acting as a rogue operator within Scotland Yard because by class he outranked everybody. And he was famous for his friendly personality and his lack of snobbery and his great compassion. And that he he walked through the door and reassured them after hearing their story that, yes, I'm afraid it is Montague who is the murderer because you've told me things that only the murderer and the police know about the crime scenes. So it is him. And uh, I'm going to lead the cover up from now on. Back in a moment with more from Jonathan Hainsworth and Christine Ward-Ages. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. 
The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. And we are back. I'd like to ask you uh, now about a couple of suspects that have made appearances on past episodes of this show. One most recently is Francis Tumblety, and the other is Charles Lechmere. Can you tell us how you see these men fitting into the case or not fitting into the case? Uh, Dr. Francis Tumblety, who was an Irish-American con man, though we have to be careful there. I mean, what he did was he sold herbal remedies that allegedly helped the complexion of ladies' skin, and he made a fortune from it. So one imagines that the product must have pleased the customers. Nevertheless, he is known as a sort of humbugger and a flim-flammer and, um, um, you know, very good people like um, Stuart Evans, the ex-police person who discovered the Tumblety suspect and uh, your fellow American, Mike Hawley, who's written several books. He's also a fellow school teacher like me. Uh, he's done excellent work on Tumblety. And we completely concur with their line of argument that Dr. Tumblety was the leading police suspect of 1888 and that, that, that he was suspected because he was in Whitechapel, even though he's a wealthy person who doesn't have to go anywhere near uh, that dangerous area. Uh, he, he gives an interview in New York that is so self-incriminating. Uh, it comes across almost uh, like a satire, like a George Bernard Shaw satire. He is certainly someone that they thought, we think, initially was very strong to be Jack the Ripper because uh, he was in Whitechapel. They arrested him as the Ripper. He did not confess, either because he was smart or because he was innocent. And then they arrest, uh, they charged him sorry, with um, homosexual offences because homosexuality was um, illegal in, in, in um, the UK until the mid-1960s, and that he was given bail for this more, relatively speaking, more minor offence, and then he fled to France and from there to the jurisdictional safety of New York, never to return to England. And so, yeah, we, we think that he is what the police, or at least a faction of Scotland Yard, perceived to be uh, the number one suspect. But the thing is, if the evidence against Druitt posthumously wasn't so strong, that is what McNaughton would have told the Druitt family. He would have said, it's not your Montague who was delusional. In fact, we suspect it was this Irish-American con man. And, 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 and he fits some of the British prejudice, a foreigner, Irish... Gay, although it has to be said that McNaughton was not prejudiced against uh, homosexuality because he he alone of the police had been brought up at Eton where he had experienced all sorts of things living with boys and just had a more worldly view of such an issue. He, he continued to call Oscar Wilde a genius even after Oscar Wilde had been uh, ruined in a homosexual scandal. Nevertheless, 
McNaughton would have wanted it to be Tumblety. He would have wanted to be anybody but Druitt because Druitt is connected to his friend Magendi and that that is the potential for reputational damage. So we, we think that because McNaughton didn't regard Tumblety as a viable alternative to Druitt, that that's what, that, that means that it, it isn't Tumblety. The other one you mentioned uh, is, is Charles Cross or Charles Lechmere, because he has a dual name, who discovered Polly Nichols' body and a fellow, what's his name? Um, Christer, is that right? Uh, something like that. He, he, he's from uh, continental Europe and he, he, he's been on this for, for years and he's written a, 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 a book on it and he's a very good writer. But we think that the idea that the cabman who found Polly Nichols' body is actually the murderer of Polly Nichols and is the murderer of uh, all, all the other uh, Jack the Ripper victims has nothing going for it. There's nothing to it. It's a hell of an ambitious thing to try and solve it from this distance. And you'd have to have very hard evidence that somebody the police did not suspect at the time, who's right in front of them, who's at a crime scene, and yet they have no interest in him as a potential suspect. You'd have to find something they did not find. And you'd have to you'd have to have what that something is. And you'd have to explain why they didn't know what that something is. And I'm afraid that the people who accept that theory, in our opinion, have just nothing except the split-second timing of alleged blood flows and when somebody spoke to someone in the dark. And and the problem with all that is that's just based on newspaper reports and that's based on people who are saying when they were at a crime scene or not at a crime scene in, in an era where people didn't carry clocks or watches and therefore times were much looser. You had to rely on um, Big Ben to know when the hour had struck. So we just think that uh, th- there's nothing to that at all. That's our opinion anyway. But I would also like to throw in someone you didn't ask about, and that is the probably the leading suspect amongst uh, a lot of people who, who are sensible people. They have nothing to do with the ludicrous royal conspiracy theorizing of the late 70s, which came about partly because of the shadow of uh, the Watergate scandal in America. Um, and that is Aaron Kosminski, uh, the the Polish lunatic who also appears as a suspect in McNaughton's memorandum and once in uh, George Sims's writings. Not by name in Sims, of course, there are no names there, but he is named as Kosminski, no other name is given, in, in McNaughton's writings. And therefore, you would think that since, since Dr. Robert Anderson, or Sir Robert Anderson, as he became certainly alluded to a suspect in, in, in some of his writings and speeches and in his memoirs, who you can make a very strong case that he's talking about the unnamed Aaron Kosminski, who is a Polish barber, who is you know from, from a large extended family and who went into an asylum, a series of asylums in 1891, never to get out because he was diagnosed with, uh, with uh, schizophrenia. Surely that's a theory that, has legs as much as the Druitt interpretation because Dr. Anderson, who was the assistant police commissioner, uh, he went to his grave believing that it was probably this man was was the murderer uh, being mentally deranged and that his the operational head of the case, Donald Swanson, Chief Inspector Donald Swanson, uh, in his copy of Anderson's memoirs, a man whom he got along very well with, 
um, he had penciled in, and this was discovered in the late 1980s, he had penciled in some annotations to Anderson's uh, comments on the Ripper, and he had he had said Kosminski is the suspect. Uh, so what you seem to have is two senior uh, Victorian policemen who are known for their uh, personal integrity and credibility, and they have gone with uh, the local uh, lunatic uh, immigrant figure. Neither of them, I think, can be seriously accused of anti-Semitic prejudice, quite the opposite. Uh, they just felt that because uh, a Jewish witness had said, this is the man, but I won't testify against him, so they claim, th this is also a strong theory. Now, one of the things about our book is that we deal with these suspects. We dealt with Tumblety, and I've explained what we think there, but we also deal with Kosminski. And we believe that the whole um, interpretation of Kosminski as the best of the suspects, of the police suspects, is utterly without merit. And that is because they never take into account that not only do Anderson and Swanson appear to believe that this man had died soon after being incarcerated in a mental institution, which he was not dead. In fact, he dies after World War One. He outlives Anderson and Swanson. Uh, Anderson, sorry. Um, and Anderson had told his own son that uh, the lunatic who was Jack the Ripper, oh, he died a long time ago in an asylum. As he was telling him that, Aaron Kosminski was still alive in the asylum. Sir Melvin McNaughton knew he was still alive. We can show this from the sources. George Sims knew that the Polish immigrant suspect in the asylum was still alive. Well, then how did that all get messed up? And we argue in the book that if you step back, you'll see that in a number of sources, there are important police, senior Scotland Yard police, or important Victorians of the time, who all say, oh, yes, I know who Jack the Ripper is. It was this man. And you can look up who they're talking about, and they claim that man is dead, long dead, or, or and he was a suicide. None of them were dead. None of them had taken their own life, except Montague Druitt. In other words, we think that McNaughton, who does have some of the arrested development of an overgrown adolescent and who loathed working under Dr. Robert Anderson, they hated each other, those two men. He created the fiction of Kosminski as a viable suspect for the reason that uh, he wanted to keep everybody else at Scotland Yard as far away from Druitt as possible by hiding him in their suspects. In other words, he told each of those Scotland Yard men and a couple of psychiatrists and a lawyer with another suspect, he said, yes, I think you're right. I think you're right. Yes, that is Jack the Ripper, whom you know is dead. Or yes, and who took his own life. And they thought that McNaughton agreed with them when actually he's playing them. And he especially enjoyed playing with Dr. Anderson because what he told Anderson was, Aaron Kosminski is dead because he was a chronic 
masturbator and he has masturbated himself into a state of exhaustion and expired. And Anderson, completely different from McNaughton, was uh, a Victorian sexual prude who believed that masturbation, the sin of Onan, as the Bible calls it, was so uh, evil and so dangerous that any man capable of that sort of thing was capable of murder. So what you have is the the, the overgrown schoolboy McNaughton diverting Anderson's attention away and using that particular aspect of Aaron Kosminski, which was true. He, he was apparently compulsively playing with himself, what, what McNaughton discreetly calls solitary vices and what Anderson thunderingly calls in his memoirs uh, unmentionable vices, loathsome, uh, a, a creature capable of anything. And so, and so he, he, all the other police suspects, even Tumblety, um, who, who is known to, remembered by Jack Littlechild, who was the head of the anti-terrorist force, writing in a letter to Sims, he thinks he committed suicide. Why does he think that? There's no, there's no evidence that Tumblety, he died in a, of natural causes in a, in, causes in a, in a St. Louis rest home. Why does he think that? Well, because at some point he's run into McNaughton and said, you know, I, I think it was Tumblety. And McNaughton's gone, well, yes, yes, probably it was that uh, American. And, and you know he probably committed suicide in France. He, it's, it, it's a scam. And all these other writers, I'm sorry, we're sorry to say, have been scammed by McNaughton all along. And I'll give you one more example of that. Why do we keep saying Mary Jane Kelly is the last murder? Why do we keep saying five murders when it's 12? Well, because five murders is what McNaughton claimed were by a singular maniac, by Jack the Ripper. In other words, by Druitt. And what he does in, in, in his propaganda in the late Victorian era and the Edwardian era is that McNaughton shamelessly lies. He says that the police knew at the time when they found Mary Jane Kelly completely shredded as a, as a human being in death, her dignity completely taken away from her, they knew that whoever did that had to be on the verge of a mental breakdown and would either be incarcerated for life in, a, in an asylum or would uh, kill themselves. This, of course, is completely untrue in the sense that they didn't know that. They had no sense of that, and they kept looking at every subsequent prostitute murder as probably by Jack the Ripper. He is a great propagandist, McNaughton. He wanted to give the impression that, that the police were onto it. It was not a protracted affair, the Ripper murders. It was a, a short-lived autumn of terror, and that once Kelly was killed, the murderer was on his way out. We knew that. He would have to exit at that point somehow. Um, the average person who writes these books is still being scammed by McNaughton saying the five murders, Mary Jane Kelly is the last and therefore he just went with Druitt because Druitt dies soon after. No. In the early sources, he knows that the subsequent murders are also supposed to be Jack the Ripper by Jack the Ripper. And he knows that the self-murder of Montague Druitt does not explain the cessation of the murders because they didn't stop. And therefore, he had to align himself with the idea that all those murders after are copycats. Wow. Well, thank you for giving me an idea for a future episode. 
I'm going to have to do one now on the notorious history of masturbation. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I I didn't realize how evil it really was. So I'd like to ask you about Charles Druitt. At some point, he feels compelled to write a testament, fingering Montague as Jack the Ripper without actually naming him. Yes. Why do you think he does this, and what becomes of that testament? Well, I'll let Christine answer that, but I'll just answer the, first, the second part of the question. We, Because of what the article in the Daily Mail of January 1899 says, the murderer confessed to a Church of England minister and priest and he he wanted the truth. The murderer wanted the truth to come out within a decade. And we think that that's why McNaughton didn't just simply bury the whole thing so his friend Magendi could never be in danger of being linked to any of these horrors because he discovered that Charles Druitt felt duty-bound by the confession of his cousin to reveal something of the truth in, in a decade and therefore McNaughton, perhaps reluctantly, thought, well, we're going to have to reveal something of the truth ahead of this uh, troublesome priest. Uh, and I'll let Christine go now. Mm. Um, the um, the story that appeared in the newspaper just over 10 years after um, Montague had died, it's a fascinating letter and um, it's titled The White Church Murders, Solution of a London Mystery. And the story goes that the newspapers received correspondence from a North Country vicar who thinks he's got the solution to the Jack the Ripper murders and um, he doesn't want his name mentioned and he doesn't want the murderer's name mentioned. But um, he says that um, he received the information and was directed to publish the facts after 10 years and he received the information from a brother clergyman And he was also told that he had to alter the information to defeat identification. He mentions that the murderer was a man of good position and otherwise unblemished reputation who suffered from epileptic mania and is long since deceased. He also mentioned that... um, He took on um, some volunteer work as a rescue worker, um, helping the poor women who later became his victims. In Whitechapel. In Whitechapel. So the the newspaper sends a journalist up north to seek out this vicar and try and get a bit more information out of him. And... um, the vicar will not give him any more information apart from asking him, please don't mention my name because it might identify the murderer and the murderer's family. So that tells us that there is a relationship there with this vicar and the Druitt family. If we look back at the West Sussex archives where the Druitt papers are held and these hundreds of letters, 
I was able to read through them and establish that the closest friend to the Reverend Charles and Isabel Majendi Hill to that couple was Isabel's brother and his name was the Reverend Arthur de Borlay Hill. Now, Arthur... He he was a a teacher at Winchester College and he actually taught Monty Druitt. So he knew Monty Druitt before his sister knew Charles Charles Druitt, Monty's cousin. So he, he was a familiar figure within both families who later became united by marriage, the the Druitts and the Majengi and de Borle family. So Arthur is a really good person to think that he is the North Country vicar. Um, He had been a minister fairly close to where Charles was in Whitechurch or Whitchurch Um, that's where Charles was. Now, uh, um, the person who has written this letter calls it the white church murders. Well, they weren't the white church murders, they were the white chapel murders. However, Charles's parish was called white church. So we think that that's probably um, Arthur's way of sort of changing the information and obscuring a few facts. He also says in the letter that I provide you substantial truth under fictitious form. Again, the sources on Monty Druitt in the late Victorian era and early Edwardian era are always like this. Fact mixed with fiction. McNaughton and Sims were doing that covertly. This vicar is doing it overtly, which was very surprising to the newspaper. Look, I, you know, I, I, I'm telling you something, but it seems to be a mix of truth and lies. But I'm not a bad vicar doing that because I'm admitting it. We think, though, that they misunderstood his letter, that he meant substantial truth under the title that is fictitious, the white church murders, that that's fictitious. But then why is it fictitious? What's the point? Well, it does make a point in his mind if he is alluding to Charles Druitt's parish and that Charles Druitt is the brother clergyman who took Montague's confession. Mm-hmm. We've also um, we also established Arthur as a, a a fairly eccentric sort of character. He um, he was very sure of himself. He thought that decisions he made were right. He was always right and other people would come to see how right he was. And in the book, we're able to um, show a few incidents that took place that really establish Arthur as someone that probably would go through with writing this letter. He really wanted to help his sister and his brother-in-law, and he would have really been conscious of keeping the reputation of the Druids intact and not exposing them. Um, McNaughton would have thought that Arthur was a bit of a a concern as far as um, having him divulge this information, but it seems to have being, you know, a one-week wonder in the newspapers and because they couldn't get any more information, they seemed to be very reluctant to print the whole letter because newspapers were often sued and the Druitts were a family full of lawyers. So this is um, 
who we think it was, and the book really establishes why we think it was Arthur de Borlay Hill as the North Country vicar. And the other thing is, is that is that it's revealed when the journalist meets the vicar, trying to get more information. One more morsel he does get is that he says that you know the murderer is is long dead, and that at one time he was a surgeon. Now. This sounds strange to our modern ears. How can you be at one time a surgeon? Surely, if you're a surgeon, if you're trained as a surgeon, whether you uh, do much work at it, I mean, you're always a surgeon. But you see, we discovered that surgeon, doctor, medical student, they were all very loose about definitions and that these are all interchangeable. And therefore, we think that what he's saying is, look, he had some medical experience as a student. Now, this vicar, as Christine said, it's just a, a couple of days' wonder in the press, even across to France, are very fascinated by what on earth is, is this all about. But it has no legs because it just can't have a sequel. But that's partly because of McNaughton and Sims. McNaughton has already shown the draft copy of his memorandum to Major Arthur Griffiths, who puts some of the content into his, but not names, into his huge book, Mysteries of Police and Crime. And this did cause uh, a press sensation at the end of 1898. It's only one long paragraph in this very large book on the history of police and criminals and crime. But people spotted this this, this paragraph saying suddenly, oh yeah, well, the police uh, had you know some very good suspects for Jack the Ripper and uh, Mary Jane Kelly, in 1888 was the last victim, and they knew that at the time, and it was probably probably this drowned doctor who was the uh, murderer, but they didn't have enough evidence to prosecute him, and then he, he, he cheated earthly justice by drowning himself in the Thames. I mean, this was a revelation to other members of the press and certainly the public, and we think that was deliberately done by McNaughton in order to get ahead of what Arthur de Borlay Hill was going to do, which might get out of control and the whole thing would come out that the that Scotland Yard had in fact arrested Jack the Ripper and let him go and that Druitt was related to Colonel Magendi at the Home Office was there some sort of protection going on so they got in ahead of the vicar and then after the vicar's story George Sims weighs in with a very rude and cruel piece against the vicar basically saying well you know dotty clergyman they get a deathbed confession. Some cr sly criminal says, oh, by the way, I'm Jack the Ripper. And priests who know nothing about crime or policing, they fall for it. This is not in not at all what the vicar has written. Uh, but that's what Sims does. He, he, he really tries to discredit the vicar. And he says, look, the real Ripper uh, is known to the police. They were in search of him alive when they found him dead. And how could he confess to a priest? when he killed himself on the same night that he eviscerated Mary Jane Kelly, killed himself on the River Thames. A raving, shrieking fiend. He was in no position to confess to anyone. So again, what you see there is the Farquharson addition to the, to the, to the cover story about murder and self-murder within sort of an hour of each other, or even less, being exploited by Sims in order to uh, discredit 
the unnamed vicar, and it essentially worked. Although uh, a, a, a writer researcher called David Barrett, he found a primary source that we use, and we must point out that David Barrett, uh, a very meticulous um, English fellow, he doesn't agree with any of our interpretations of the material. But nonetheless, he found a, a newspaper source in which somebody in the police is telling the journalist after the vicar story come out saying, oh yeah, there's nothing to that vicar story. There's nothing to that vicar story. Uh, we, we we know who Jack the Ripper was, but there's nothing to that vicar story in which the vicar's ripper has, um, you know, confessed to a clergyman and then another clergyman has revealed the story and the vicar's ripper. And this is what the police, the unnamed policeman adds. And of course the vicar's ripper drowned himself in the Thames. We think this was a slip by McNaughton because, in fact, the vicar went out of his way to imply suicide, but does not say what the circumstances of the Ripper's death was, just that he died soon after, soon after the Mary Jane Kelly murder, which is what happened to Montague Druitt, and therefore soon after means had time to confess to anyone he liked, which matches the facts. Montague Druitt kills himself about three weeks after Mary Jane Kelly's murder. So we think that these these sources, which have long been ignored or misunderstood, the late Chris Scott, who must be credited with finding the vicar source, most of the people in, in who are so-called ripperologists, they just dismiss it as just, oh, these are all stories made up by the press. We think they're absolutely vital to understanding the cover-up, the threats to the cover-up, and how the people involved in the cover-up are gentlemanly. It's not a police cover-up. It's a cover-up by a policeman and a man at the Home Office and a famous writer who are all part of the so-called better classes who are determined to protect the Druitt family and the Magendi family. Well, goodness, this has been so fascinating. So your book has, has just recently been published in the U.S., correct? Yes, so um, the book was published or released on the 20th of July and so it's available um, in bookshops and online and it's published by Regnery History. And if people want to contact you, is there a way that you recommend? Yes, we um, we have a website and there's contact details on that and it's um, Hainsworth. Wardages.com. All lowercase. Perfect. Eric, Eric, can I say one last thing? Oh, yes, please. In the American edition, because we only found it after the British edition, and that's why this edition has new chapters and new information and new sources, one of the things that um, Christine found was a source written by a, a man called J.F. Nez. Uh, uh, Nisbet, who was a crony of uh, George Sims and George Sims's newspaper, The Referee. And in 1894, he provides information about the Druids, unnamed, but that's clearly who he's talking about. And he obviously has access to McNaughton. Um, and that's a, an amazing source from our point of view, because he reveals to the public, although the public mostly ignored it, that the respectable family he doesn't name had tried to hush up their members' complicity. And that was the first confirmation we had from the Victorian era of a family cover-up. And he also reveals um, that the murderer, whom he accepts had epileptic mania, 
was uh, a very affable, uh, you know, charmer when he uh, met his victims. And so we get some some insight into Montague Druitt's uh, personality. And then the last thing I'd say is we must thank Roger J. Palmer, who's a fellow American who is in Hawaii, and he's probably the, the most brilliant contemporaneous writer on the subject, and he is the one who found the American newspaper source revealing uh, about the the English patient in the French asylum um, who has been brought over there by a friend and by a cousin who is a priest and who was lying on a couch and, and raving and shrieking about being Jack the Ripper. I mean, that was an amazing source to find, and we, we thank him profusely for for uh, for uh, sharing it with us. Oh, that's great, yeah. Well, thanks to both of you for coming on and sharing your research with us. Thank you so much, Eric, thank for you, having Eric. us. It's been great. Again, I have been speaking to Jonathan Hainsworth and Christine Ward-Ages. Their book is called The Escape of Jack the Ripper, The Truth About the Cover-Up, and His Flight from Justice. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobweb corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.